So I want to invite you to take your Bibles to the book of First Peter this morning. We continue to look at the living stone, um, an old fisherman reflecting on Christ in the church. And last week, um, last week we talked a, a, a lot about our attitude toward others, toward those who are not, who do not share our faith, um, and and some of the uh, some of the 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 challenges of. of maintaining those relationships and making sure that what we're focused on is is and if there are stumbling blocks it's about Christ it's not about our personality and and this morning we're going to be in uh, 1st Peter in chapter 2 and verse 9 if you don't have a Bible there are Bibles in the racks in front of you and grab them page number is in the bulletin uh, where we are and uh, 1st Peter chapter 2 and we're going to look at um, verse 9 Peter speaks to the church, so to the believers, the followers of Christ, and he says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Would you join me in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, as we bend our knee to you, we lower ourselves and lift you up. As we come to your word, help us to lift you up, to exalt you above our hearts and our imaginations and our minds and our, our desires. Instead, to see the beauty and glory and awesome marvel. God at work on earth. We pray that you would be glorified in our midst, as you always are. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, you may remember, I mentioned a few weeks ago, that Peter, uh, this, this passage with Peter, Peter is a... Um, Peter's a fisherman by trade. He's not a he's not a writer. He's not a um, he's not a, a linguist. He doesn't really put a whole lot of real forethought into what he's doing. He tends to just kind of take ideas like they're in a bag and dump them on the table and let you sort through them. Um, and and that's really the way that Peter Peter works. Um, but those of you who who um, are familiar with public speaking, you know sometimes things just fall together. And this is one of those moments where I think Peter, uh, the pieces of what is going on, what God has done in Peter's life, just kind of line up the Holy Spirit, lines them up, and we get this great thing. Now, if you want to know what it's actually technically called in rhetoric and Greek rhetoric particularly, are you ready for this? You're going to want to write this down. This is called epideictic amplification. Right. E-P-I-D-E-I-C-T-I-C. 
all right? <laughs> now, what a crazy, crazy term. Now, this is a term invented by people who never had to say it. They could just write it in books. All right, but what, what he is doing, what he is doing is, what Peter does is he creates kind of a series of steps. Um, and each idea is tied to the previous one. It's an amplification of the previous one. So we build up to a single concept. All right, we get to the top of the steps and we hit the landing that we're building to. And this is what Peter says to the believers. He says, um, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now, even though in English, um, those first three, they go um, indefinite article, A, adjective, all right, and then noun, those of you that know adjective modifies a noun, noun is a person, place, thing, or idea, okay? Um, I won't bore you too much with grammar. The, the fourth one there, a people of his own possession, there's no way to express the adjective that's in Greek there as A blank this, all right, but the, it's the, grammatically it's the same in Greek. That's all you need to know. All right, so he is he is building toward a concept, and the concept he is building toward is a people of his own possession. Whose possession? Of God's possession. All right, that Jesus, in His work in us, has built us up into a people of God's own possession, His own possession. So what does he say? Let's start with the first one. He says, a chosen race. Now today, we use the term race in English um, to indicate skin color. This is absolutely not what it was used for um, in, in up until about the 1800s. This was not the way that you used race. The idea of race is a group of people who have a shared set of values and culture. That's a race. So you would have the Italian race. Ciao. You would have the Spanish race. All right. Uh... You know, you'd have the, the Mexican race, siesta, you know, each, everybody had, the race was just a description of a group of people that had a shared culture, that's all it was. And so he says, you are a chosen race, you're a group of people that have been chosen. And this is a very important word. So everybody goes, wow, I've been chosen, isn't that great, somebody chose me. Um, the second line that he says he says that you are a chosen race and you are a royal priesthood. Now notice how he elevates both words. All right? Before he talked about a chosen race. So this is just a group of people with shared culture. All right? And they've been selected, they've been chosen, they're unique. So if you 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 envision the race, okay? Um, and it derives from the same it's the same idea as a race today. What happens when a when you have a race all right, a foot race or a car race or whatever. Everybody lines up and they all go in the same direction. Okay, That's what we're talking about. Well, he says out of that race, out of that chosen race, that one particular race, there is. we are not only a chosen race, we are also a royal priesthood. Now, royalty, all right, Greek basileos, royalty has responsibility. See, if you're chosen, that's somebody bigger than you picks you for something. All right? Um, Red Rover, Red Rover. How many of you guys remember playing that game? Red Rover, Red Rover, send Billy over. You know, and then you would lock your arms and try to clothesline Billy. All right? Um, you know, the, the, ah, the years when children's games involved actual violence. All right. Um, you know, but th this, this, this idea of choosing, I choose somebody. 
Well, we're chosen, but then he says we're also a royal priesthood. So he's building, he's amplifying. Not only are we chosen, we are chosen for a responsibility and a role. And that responsibility and role is to be a royal priesthood. Now, a royal priesthood does not mean we are royalty. It means we are the priesthood to royalty. Okay? So it's not that we are royal, but rather we are the servants of the king. The royal priesthood. So not just a regular priesthood, but a special priesthood. Serving a special leader, a special king. So he's, he's building these ideas of uniqueness. And then he says, not only a royal priesthood, but a holy nation. Now to be chosen, I look down and I see a chosen race. This is my race. To be the royal priesthood is to be, these are the ones that are going to serve me. To be holy is to be set apart. To, to be uh, specifically moved aside. What makes a church building holy? When I was a kid growing up, um, and some of you know this, I've told this story before, but um, we lived in the Sunday school wing of our church building. They had actually converted it into the parsonage. My dad was the pastor. They couldn't afford a house, so they built basically a big apartment for the family to live in in the Sunday school wing. I mean, it actually, our, our house... Our house joined the auditorium of the church building, the sanctuary of the church building, through our guest room. All right? So naturally, we as children, we really revered that auditorium. It was, it was um, you know, you were never, it, we, we played in it all the time. We were in that auditorium all the time. The, bent, the pews doubled as barbed wire for us to crawl through enemy lines. All right, and so we were crawling. We used to we used to have hurdle races on the pews. Children, you're not allowed to do this here, especially because they're chairs and they'll fall down on you. But our pews were nailed down to the ground; they were screwed into the ground. And so my sisters and I, we would try to have hurdling races from the seats of the pews over the back of the pews to the next pew. That probably did a lot of damage, upon reflection. Um, but we we played in it. We didn't think anything of it. It was that was our playroom until my father one time caught us. Now there's nothing worse than a pastor catching you fooling around in the sanctuary. Um, my pastor caught us and he he administered corporal punishment upon us, um, and uh, and we couldn't sit for a week. Uh, and he said, "This is this is a holy place." We said, well, it, what's the difference? I mean, four walls, furniture, carpet. I mean, what makes it holy? What makes something holy? Is it just the place? Is it, is it that, that, you know, it was built on some kind of sacred apex of spiritual energy? No. What makes it holy is that it's been chosen and set apart for a holy purpose. Now, some of you remember back in the day, um, church culture was you didn't come into the auditorium or the sanctuary until you were ready to sit and pray and think and be focused on what God is doing. And I think sometimes that can be taken to an extreme, but we can take the casualness of our attitude to our faith to another extreme and say, oh, nothing is holy. Everything is, is open for use and it doesn't really matter. You know, oh, well, we need to have a drink. Go grab the communion cups, you know, um, that, that kind of thing. We, we, we would never do that, by the way, um, as amusing as it might be. Tom can tell you stories about things we as kids used to do with communion cups that wasn't, wasn't sanctified at all. Um, where was I? Oh, yeah. things that are holy. Something is holy because it is intentionally set apart to be holy. 
A holy place is not holy because it has some kind of mystical energy. A holy place is holy because God has chosen that to be holy. And a holy nation is a nation in which God has chosen to set apart from everyone else. Not to make them better, but to serve a specific purpose. Things that are holy are set apart to serve a specific purpose. So we are a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. And then he compounds and he says, a people for his own possession. Now I'm going to tell you something. When God wants to own something, when he wants to take active ownership, now God is the sovereign of the universe, he owns everything. All right? But when he takes something to, be an, to have an active ownership in that thing, a, a people of his own possession, he chooses, he appoints a royal priesthood, and he sets apart. And we as believers, we are designed from the ground up by God to be his possession. You say, but we're broken, we're flawed, we're, we've got issues, we've got problems. I, I don't feel holy, I don't feel like a priesthood, I don't feel like a, a, a chosen race, I don't, I don't think that I should be, but the fact of the matter is, if, if in the course of your life you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you were chosen by the eternal God to be a part of His own possession. You are a treasure to the Creator of the world. When people say, well, you know, I just don't feel, I, 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 I don't feel important, I don't feel special. And you know what, the vast majority of us, we, we feel like that on a regular basis. The vast majority of us feel like the pinky toe of the body of Christ. You know, little, insignificant, or better yet, the gallbladder. Or the, the appendix, you know. Uh, I'm, just a, I'm just a part of things, but I'm not really that important. I wouldn't be missed, I, you know. And we, we have a, a faulty view of ourselves because we identify ourselves by the way we see ourselves rather than by the way that Christ sees us. We need to understand that God, in His sovereignty, somewhere or another, and we don't really understand all of it, He chose you to be a part of what He's doing. And you have been chosen and selected for one purpose and one purpose alone. This is, what, this is one of those moments where I think something happened in Peter's life that it resonates. I don't even know that he was conscious about it, but it sticks in his head and he expresses it. And his cousin John expands it a little bit more in the... In the um, I think I've mentioned to you that Simon Peter and Andrew are probably cousins with James and John for the disciples. They're probably related in some way. I think they're sister. They're, I can't prove it, like absolutely concretely, but the way the Gospels reads, it seems like their their mothers are sisters. Um, but uh, but John was one of Peter's closest friends when Jesus was there on earth. And John, who writes the Gospel of John, records an event in Jesus's life in John chapter 11 where Jesus resurrects one of his closest friends, Lazarus, from the dead. Right? And I think that episode exists in Peter's conscious, conscience when he writes the next line. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him 
who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There are only a few moments in Jesus' life where he calls someone out of something. And one of the most significant moments is in John chapter 11 when Lazarus, his friend, has been dead and buried for three days and he tells the people there, he says, roll the stone away. They roll the stone away and he calls Lazarus back from the dead. Well, what's it like inside that tomb? Dark. What's death like? All right, in our thinking, death is the end, right? When you're watching a movie, what do people do when they die? They almost always, in a movie, they always close their eyes or their eyes glaze over, you know, and, and they pass on. It's, we view, and then usually the film fades, right, to black. Because we think of death as darkness, right, don't we? And so, and, and the Jews viewed it that way too. I mean, they, they, they saw it that way. They, so, so when Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb, what is he doing? He is calling him out of darkness into his marvelous light. All right. Now, here's the deal. You guys know in the, the Gospels we read about the triumphant entry. You know, Jesus comes to Jerusalem and people are throwing palms down and they're putting their clothes down for him to walk on. You ever wonder why they're doing that? You need to understand this. On his way to that day, Jesus healed two blind people all right, who had been born blind, and he raised Lazarus from the dead. So when Jesus shows up in Jerusalem, it's not just, it's not just, oh look, there's Jesus, let's throw stuff in the, he's got a guy who was dead, walking ahead of him going, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, you'd throw palms down too. All right, this, this is a big deal, and I think it sits in Peter's mind. I think to Peter, what God does for us, what Jesus do, did for us as followers of Christ is he called us out of the darkness of death into the, into the marvelous light. And our job is to go before him proclaiming that truth. I was in darkness, now I am a light. What does the apostle John call Jesus? All right, in the verses that we read earlier at the beginning of the service, he is the light of the world. He is the presence. He is that which makes manifest. John always uses this term. John, John describes how, uh, how Jesus, Jesus came into the world to make manifest the condemnation that we already lived in, in John chapter 3. He says, all, all I did was show you what was already a reality. Out of darkness. into his marvelous light. And the, the word here that's used, that you may proclaim His excellency. This is a really uh, great, great line, and it's, it's, worth, it's worth remembering. Um, but the, the idea here in Greek is literally the proclamation of, of his honor and his, this is, this is weird and it's going to come off wrong, but his manitude. Now, what do, you mean, what do I mean by that? I mean, I mean this. This is the man. What would happen is that an ancient king would be coming to a town. Right? He'd be coming to visit. And back in the days before we had C-SPAN to tell us what to believe, um, the, the, he would be coming to town and the people that would come before him were always the people who had either been honored by him or been defeated by him and they would walk to the city gates. This usually happened in Rome, but it happened in other towns as well. They would come through the city gates and they would proclaim, this is the man, Ego Homo. Um, this, this is him. All right? This is the guy. 
This is the man that you need to notice. You need to pay attention to. And here are all the reasons, tick, 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 that he is worth noticing as the man. He is the man. And, and the Apostle Peter uses that same term in Greek for our lives as God's people. We are chosen to declare that Jesus is the man. We are chosen to declare it by what He has done in us to bring us from darkness into light. It is extraordinary, I think, that that we live in a world and a culture which has conditioned Christians to be either consciously or unconsciously ashamed of the one we put our faith and trust in. That one of the last things that we bring up in a conversation with someone is our identification with the one we believe to be the creator and redeemer of the universe. Oh, you're a Christian? What a surprise. I knew all these things about you, but I didn't know that. We've been taught in our world that religion is not something that you share with the general public. You, you don't talk about it. Don't, don't talk about your faith. Nobody wants to hear about your faith. Now, I know that I get paid to talk about my faith, all right? So put that disclaimer out there. But the, but the reality is, it defines who I am. I don't know that I could have a conversation with, with somebody for more than five or ten minutes before they figure out I'm a Christian if I don't say it right out front. And I'm not quoting Bible verses and like, how are you? God so loved the world that he... You know, I'm, not, I'm not doing that. It's just part of who I am. I have to consciously, in conversation with somebody, I have to consciously make sure that they don't un- that, that I remember they may not understand some scriptural thing that I say. Because as much as as hard as I I I, I want the, the, the word of God to, to be in my vocabulary and in my breath and in my moments, because I think that's the way it was for guys like the Apostle Peter. I don't think he sat around, got up in the morning and said, Today I'm gonna tell people this part of Jesus' life. I think it was just part of who he was. And he wasn't ashamed of it. He was martyred for it. But it was part of who he was. We really truly believe that we have been chosen. That we are priests to the King. If we are a holy nation, if we are God's possession, that transforms not the way I, not just the way I live, but it transforms the way I talk and the way I act and the way I move. And and I don't have to be intentionally. I'm not I'm not advocating being abrasive Christians. Or, or, or caustic, or walking around with sandwich signs proclaiming the end of the world, or anything like that. There should never be any doubt or equivocation about who is the Lord of your life. Who is the master of your destiny. If we have truly been called out of darkness, into the light, if we have been truly resurrected by Jesus Christ, then it transforms who we are and how we live. I often, um, I often encounter Christians 
I want to put this the right way so that I'm not offending people. So if I offend you, that was not my intention. I often encounter Christians and the impression I get from those Christians is they would be the same person whether they were Christians or not. That their faith, it, it plays a purely secondary or tertiary purpose in their lives. That, that if they were, if they were an amoral punk who ripped people off before they became a Christian, and they're still an amoral punk who ripped people off after they became a Christian, notice they put the little quotation marks in, because we should be being transformed. Now, I'm not saying the next day they should just radically change their lives, but God should be at work in their lives. I, I come from a, a, a religious tradition where the answer to every sin was just to get saved again. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this at all. I, I, there's, a, there's an ongoing joke that every kid should go to summer camp and get saved at least twice a year. Um... I taught in a Christian school, and in that Christian school, the answer for all of the high school students, the answer to any sin that they got caught in was to go to the pastor's office, to tell him how sorry they were, to allow him to share the plan of salvation with them, and to pray a prayer, and therefore what they had done before was before they were Christians, so they couldn't be held responsible for it. That's an abuse of the scriptures, I think. If I'm a follower of Christ, there is no easy way out of my sin. I have to repent. I have to confess. I have to accept what I have done and my responsibilities. And I have to change. If I truly have been brought out of darkness into light, then my life is, is destined to proclaim His light. And when there are spots of darkness in me and, and in my being, I recognize them as such, and I say, those are not Christ. And I set them aside, and I repent and confess, and whatever is required of me in order to, to get that out of the way, so that what people hear from me is the proclamation of His marvelous light, the resurrective work in my life. God can be glorified even in my weakness, because when I am willing to admit that it is my weakness and not His, He shines forth. Your faith should transform you. Now, there's a lot that goes into why, he, why it doesn't. But it should change you. That's what Peter says. He says we don't have the opportunity. We don't have the privilege. We don't have the responsibility. And I know this is very unpopular among some Christian authors. But we don't have... We do not have the right to live our lives the way we want to live them. If you are a follower of Christ, you are called to proclaim the one who brought you out of darkness into light. And that's hard. Christianity is not easy. Our faith is not simple. It, it, it is not, 
it is not once and done. It is not just a matter of going to church and praying. It is not a matter of just being able to read through your Bible once a year. All those things are good things, but, but that's not what our faith is about. Our faith is about a transformation, an interaction with the one who has resurrected us to proclaim him, to proclaim his light. And join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, I once again bring before you those things in my life that don't bring you glory. Those things in my life that I cling to that are dead rather than to embrace the new life that you give. Father, I ask that we as a people would constantly know and, and reiterate and re-know your glory. That as we gather on, on Sunday mornings, we are, we are charged with, with not just doing something good for church, but we are bringing praise to you. We are manifesting your light. We are manifesting the darkness around us. Father, I pray that we would be drawn to you, transformed by you, renewed by you. Some of us gathered here are, are struggling, struggling with sin, struggling with depression, tr- struggling with brokenness, struggling, struggling physically. We need to know your hand. We need to know your healing. We need to know your grace. We need to know your power that we might manifest and declare and proclaim your light. May you be glorified in us and through us. May those around us see the gospel in our actions, feel the gospel in our hands, hear the gospel in our voices. In all this, help us to proclaim your excellence, your glory. Amen.